The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, in our last study, we looked at 1 John 5.1, just the first half of the verse, which I said is very important because it teaches us something about soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. This is a doctrine that is very messed up in the church today. Okay, you ask 10 different people, you'll probably get 10 different answers on it. And this is a, this is a vital subject. Verse 1 says this, Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. Now, the tenses here in the Greek are very important. John uses the present tense, everyone who believes. Meaning, everyone who is presently believing in Yeshua, then he says, has been born of God. That's the perfect tense, which generally refers to an event in past time, the result of which persists into the present. The tense make it clear that the divine begetting is the antecedent, not the consequence of the believing. Has been born of God is a perfect, passive, indicative, conveying a settled condition brought about by an outside agent. Who's that agent? Yahweh, that's right. Brought about by Yahweh. So this verse is telling us that if someone believes that Yeshua is the Christ, they do so because they have been born of God. The new birth, precedes a person believing because dead people can't believe. God has to do something. This means that Yahweh is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Now what I want to do this morning, because we covered this verse last week, I tried to hammer it, but there's some objections that come up when you talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, so I'm going to kind of try to deal with some of those objections today. This is not going to be light, okay? It's going to get heavy. Um, if you are of the Arminian persuasion, I would just ask that you hear me out and let me know where you have difficulties with this, because we're just coming from Scripture, and we're just going to look at what the Scripture has to say, okay? But this is not light reading, okay? <laughs> so hang on, buckle up, and let's uh, look at what the Bible has to say, because the response you normally get when you explain to people, I mean, really get their attention and explain to them that salvation is a work of God. God does it. You don't play any part in it. The first thing you get is, that's not fair. I mean, you know, people will say, it's not fair for God to choose some individuals and not choose others. Right? Other people don't think it's right for God to violate someone's free will. I mean, wait a minute. They, they see salvation as something they decide to do you know, on their own. But as I've said over and over, and you keep hearing it said, and you know, Parker prayed it this morning, God is absolutely sovereign. I don't think most people believe that. They really don't. Because when I say He's sovereign, that means He does as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, Whatever takes place in time is the outworking of what God decreed from eternity. That's too strong for most people. 
Look at Isaiah 46, verse 10. It says of God, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. That means, people, that everything that happens, including your salvation, is according to the eternal plan of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, paragraph 1 of chapter 3. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. Whatever comes to pass. I'm so glad for this truth. At one time in my life, I didn't like it. First started seeing it, I was like, hmm, I was one of those people that doesn't sound fair, it doesn't sound right, doesn't sound just. But what if God had left the future individually and ultimately to the will of fallen man? Does that make you comfortable? (laughs) What if your salvation was up to you? That's a kind of scary thing, all right? The idea that God is absolutely sovereign over man's salvation is not only taught by John. We looked at that. We went through the Gospel of John last week, and we saw John's pretty strong on that. Paul also teaches this. Paul is probably way stronger than John, if that's possible, okay? And Paul demonstrates the absolute sovereignty of God for us in Romans chapter 9. That's interesting. I remember, oh man, it had to be 30 years ago, first teaching through Romans 9. And I had one of the guys in the congregation come up to me and show me his Bible. Because he'd been in church all his life. Raised a Christian. Show me his Bible's all marked up. Romans chapter 9? Not a mark. <laughs> I was like, what happened there? He goes, I've never ever heard anybody teach on Romans 9. Well, that's because it's a difficult chapter. You know, it's not something everybody likes. But Paul tells us some things in chapter 9 that I think helps us deal with these objections of, as far as Yahweh not being fair you know, in his dealing with mankind. Romans 9 through 11 is a theodicy. Okay, a theodicy is a vindication of God. So what Paul's doing in Romans 9 through 11, he's giving a vindication of God because people are questioning, well, if God's doing this, that doesn't sound right. So he's vindicating him. To vindicate means clear from criticism, suspicion, or blame. It means to defend against opposition. It is to say that what God is doing is absolutely just and righteous. Because God's doing it. Now, Paul gives us the principle of sovereign election in verse 6. He says, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. See, because people were saying, what Paul had taught up to chapter 8 is God is reaching out to the Gentiles. He is saving not just Israel, He's saving Gentiles. And people go, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. God made all these promises to Israel, and has the Word of God failed if Israel's not all getting in on this? He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Oh, you got that? Not all Israel's Israel. That's clear, right? <laughs> Paul is telling and people, this is so important theologically. There are two Israels. Physical Israel, the nation that God chose, and the people that were blood members of that nation, those who are descended from Jacob. And then we have... True Israel. What? True Israel. So we have physical Israel and true Israel. And Paul is saying that God's promises haven't failed 
Because God never promised unconditionally to each offspring of Abraham covenant blessings. See, God never intended for the nation Israel totally to be redeemed. That wasn't His plan. Within national Israel is true Israel, the remnant that belongs to God. Spiritual Israel. So you could be an Israelite without being a true Israelite. The promises were to true Israel, not national Israel. So who is true Israel? Is it the church? Yes. But what's the church? The church is the body of Christ. And what I want us to understand is that Yeshua is the true Israel. He's the Israel of God. All who are in Him become part of that true Israel. It's Him and Him alone that the promises of God are fulfilled through. We could say they are not all in Christ who are physically descended from Jacob. All right, and that's like I said, that's very important because many people today think you know God owes physical Israel these promises. Well, you got to understand this theodicy, and you see He doesn't at all. All right, then in verses seven through eleven, He illustrates the principle. He said, "God decides who will believe and undeservedly be saved, and who will rebel and deservedly be punished." Verse seven. And not all the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. It's not just because you're born of Abraham. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so... But also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So he makes it clear, listen, they, they weren't even born. They hadn't done anything good or bad. But God made a choice. And He says, she was told the older will serve the younger. That's backwards. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. People don't like that verse. That's why people stay away from Romans 9. Okay, What? God hated Esau. That's what it says. He loved Jacob. See, because God can do that. He can make choices. Before they were ever born, the text says, before they had done anything good, God said, I love Jacob. And He gives Esau over to wickedness and destruction. Now, this raises the question of, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. So the objector asks, is, is, you know, the question is, is God being unfair and choosing one person over another? That's the question. And that's what we have in John. He says, you know, salvation is up to God. God gives a new birth sovereignly. So the question is, is that right? Well, in verses 15 through 18, he shows that God is just and righteous to give mercy to whom He wishes, and withhold it from whom He wishes. For He said to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. What? Yeah, see, He can do that. He's God. And He says, I'll give it to who I want to. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then, listen, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy? For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is sovereign in the exercise of His mercy and in His love. He's free. He's unrestrained from influences outside Himself to decree whatever He wants to do, to give mercy to who He wants to, to withhold it from who He wants to. So then, He has mercy on whoever He wills. And He hardens whomever He wills. Now you might be thinking, boy, that's not what I was taught. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) But I think it's clearly what the Bible teaches. But I'm asking you, as always, to be a Berean. You should never believe anything you hear. You should always take it and study it and research it for yourself and make sure that's what it says. Because there's a lot of people telling you things that really aren't true. We're out with our neighbors the other day and we're sitting down to eat and I said, someone mentioned something about weather people and I said, there's two professions right now that you can be wrong 90% of the time and still make a good living. And they're like, okay, one's weatherman, who's the other? And they're thinking for a while and I said, the other is preachers. Right? You can be wrong 90% of the time and still make a good living because, I mean, you just got to look at all the voices in the world right now that are everybody's saying something different. So, there's a lot of wrong people out there. Well, this raises another question. If God saves who He wills and harden who He wills, what's the obvious question? If that's true, how can He hold me responsible for His choice? And that's exactly the question Paul anticipates. And he says, you will say to me then, why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? Who can resist His will? I can't resist His will. So how can I be blamed for my unbelief? He hardened Pharaoh, and Pharaoh did just what God wanted him to do. He couldn't resist God's will. No man can resist God's will. So why does he find fault or punish sinners then? Now listen carefully. This is what you've got to understand about this objection. There is no room for this objection, or that of verse 14. If Paul had been teaching that God chooses those whom he foresees would believe, because that would be based on them. And there's no room for this question. Or the ground of distinction was in the different conduct of men. There would be no room for this objection. It's very evident, therefore, that he was teaching no such doctrine. How easy would it have been to answer the charge of injustice by saying this? Oh, God chooses one and rejects another according to their works, or according to their faith. Oh, so it's not about God then. See, but that, that's why this question arose, because he's not teaching that. The only reason this question arises is because Paul is teaching very clearly that God chooses one and rejects another based solely on His own will. And that the destiny of men is determined by the sovereign pleasure of God alone. Have you ever asked these questions? If God is sovereign as decreed from all eternity, whatever takes place in time, how can I be responsible for what I do? You ever thought that? It's okay to ask questions. You know, it's okay to be confused about the scripture and say, God, I don't understand this. Can you, you know, what is, what is this, Lord? How can we resist his will? If you've ever asked those questions, it's only because you understand that what the Bible is teaching is the absolute sovereignty of God. I've heard this question raised many times. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the Greek word here for fault is memphomai, and it means to blame. It has the idea of holding responsible. So the question is reinforced by the consideration that no one can frustrate 
no one can resist God's will. Now, the Greek word for will here is bulama, and it means resolve or purpose. Now, when talking about the will of God, we have to differentiate between what is called the sovereign will of God and the moral will of God. Because the Scripture refers to both those as God's will. For example, look at will in these two passages. Romans 9 here, does the term will mean the same in both these passages? No, it doesn't. See, in Romans 9, he uses the term will to speak of God's sovereign decree. Who can resist God's sovereign will? Nobody can resist it. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, he uses the term will to speak of the will of precept, his moral will. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So God's will is that you be holy. Are you always holy? That you should abstain from sexual immorality. So I want you to live a holy life. Do you always do that? No, because God's moral will is very often violated. See, the term will is kind of ambiguous, and it has to be determined by the context. The Ten Commandments are God's preceptive will. They command me to do this and to refrain from doing that. They state what ought to be done, but they neither state nor cause what is done. Okay? God's decretive will, however, causes every event. It might be helpful to clarify the term will and not use will for the precepts. You know, talk about his requirements of morality or his commands or his laws and reserve will for the divine decree. That'd make it easier. God's sovereign will is secret until it happens. Okay, we don't know. God, you know, that's why we pray so often, God, what do you want me to do? You know, you get confused. Our concern is to be obedient to the moral commands of God in the Scriptures. We know what that is. And I've had people come to me and say, I really want to know the will of God. I'm like, well, here's the will of God. That you live a holy life. Are you doing that? No? Well, you start there. How about how about start with what you know, okay? People want to know the secret will of God, you know, His decretive will. The Scripture commands all men to believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. But in His sovereign will, He's chosen some to believe and He's chosen some to harden. That's His choice. So how can God blame people for not believing when He has decreed that they're not going to believe? No one can resist His will. That's a hard question. How can God pour out His wrath on people for not believing when He's hardened them in their unbelief? And Paul answers the anticipated objection by quoting what God said in response to a similar complaint made by Israel long ago in Isaiah's prophecy. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded, say to the molder, Why'd you make me like this? Does that sound dumb? Hey, the pot stands up and says, Hey, what, potter, why did you make me this way? Now, Israel is in view here as the molded in this illustration because Paul quotes here from Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to the maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. See, Israel here, he's telling, in Isaiah, he's telling Israel had no right to criticize God for shaping her for a particular purpose for his own choosing. Really, Israel had nothing to complain about since God had formed her for an honorable use. Now, obviously, the same is true of individuals 
And again, in Isaiah, we read this. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Can you imagine that? Or, your work has no handles. In other words, hey, where's my handles, maker? You know, it's like, I didn't want handles. (laughs) Woe to him who says to a father, what are you beginning? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? See, this passage is Israel's response to hearing that Cyrus had been raised up to serve Yahweh's purpose. Cyrus was a pagan king, but God said, he's the rod of my anger. I'm going to use him to chastise you. And they're like, "Ah, why can you do that? See, we can't separate the quoted text in Romans from the original context of Israel's complaint to God about decisions that God had made. They didn't like that decision. Does the clay ask the potter questions? That's absurd. And man is as far from comprehending the mind of the omniscient God as clay is from comprehending the mind of the potter. We need to realize the limits on our thinking. Isaiah 55, 8 says, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. You do realize that, right? Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. You just, you know, you don't think like I do. Psalm 50, 21. These things you have done, and I've been silent. See, God didn't respond right away. You thought I was like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay charge before you. Martin Luther said this to his opponent, Erasmus. Mere human reason can never comprehend how God is good and merciful. And therefore, you make to yourself a God of your own fancy, who hardens nobody, condemns nobody, pities everybody. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin and cannot help themselves but must, by necessity of their natural constitution, continue in sin and remain children of wrath? The answer is, God is incomprehensible throughout. And therefore, His justice, as well as His other attributes, must be incomprehensible. God is so far above us, and you know, people try to, you know, again, the potter and the clay. It's on this very ground that Paul exclaims, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Now, His judgments could not be past finding out if we could always perceive them, if we could understand them. Look with me at Jeremiah 18. Again, we'll go to the potter's house. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Arise, go down to the potter's house. There I will let you hear word, my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. Something happened, didn't come out the way he wanted it, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares Yahweh. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, 
And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Now the analogy is obvious. The potter makes choices and the clay plays no part in the choices. He just goes along with it because that's how it is. So he says in 9.20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Now Paul doesn't answer the question, but he appeals to a reverential silence which has the majesty of God as the demanding thing on it. So listen, you're talking to God? Note the contrast here. Oh man! To answer back to God? How can man question God? Well, you can do that if you bring him down to your level. And that's what happens today. God is brought down to man's level. Matter of fact, he's brought below man because men tell him what to do. They order him around. But the words answer back here come from the Greek word antapokrinomai. It's a compound word from anti, meaning opposite, contrast, or against. And apokrinomai, to conclude for oneself, to begin to speak, to contradict or dispute. So antapokrinomai denotes disputation and resistance. That's important. It's not merely an attempt to get an answer. It's not just asking questions. It's fighting against. It's resisting. Hey, that's not right. How can you, who do you think you are? How can man with his infantile puny brain speak against the Almighty God who created that brain? The emphasis falls on you. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And if you find yourself questioning God, in this argumentative fashion. I said, it's okay to ask questions, but in this, this is an argument. You played the fool because you're saying, because I can't figure this out, there must be something wrong with God. He did it wrong. And you've been there, haven't you? Some situation in your life happens, you think, God, you messed up. You shouldn't have done this. I don't like this. Paul says, shut your mouth and admit that you know very little. See, God is omniscient. We're ignorant. How can we speak against Him? Now, have you ever been in the presence of a really great mind and felt just totally unworthy to even question them? How can we ever question or contradict God? Paul gives us an analogy from the Hebrew Scriptures that's an absurdity. In 9.21, he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, another for disuse. Now, notice that all the clay comes from the same lump. This lump is the, not the lump of innocent and deserving individuals, okay? This is the lump of fallen man, dead in sin, under the wrath of God. See, every one of us deserves the wrath of God. That has to be the starting point, people, for us understanding this. But God has poured out His wrath on His Son for the sake of the elect, and so the elect get mercy. Now, the word right here 
is from the Greek word exousia, which means authority or right. What gives God absolute right? Absolute authority over man. It's a one-word answer. What? Creation. That's what gives God right. Guess what He did? He created us. That gives Him the right to do what He wants with us, right? When you create something, it's yours. You created it. Do what you want with it. Okay? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen, in the great expanse of eternity which stretches behind Genesis 1.1, the universe was unborn and uncreated and God existed alone with His divine counsel family. Verse 27, so God created man. In His own image, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So men are a direct creation of God. Over and over in this text in Genesis 1, it says, God said... And it was so. This is creation ex nihilio, out of nothing. And after God created something, the thing had no authority to complain. You get that, right? Why did you make me this way? See, a wren has no right to complain that it's not an elephant. I mean, God decided to create a world. And a world, by definition, includes differences. The different things have no right to hold God responsible for the qualities they have or qualities they lack. God is responsible to no one. He distributed wings, horns, legs, and minds just as it suited Him. No one has any claim on God. Out of His own free choice, He created gods, angels, stars, planets, earth, mountains, deserts, rivers, lakes, insects, and elephants and everything in between. He gave elephants... Four legs, big, thick ones. And wrens, two legs, little skinny ones. Why? Because he wanted to. (laughs) Okay? He wanted to. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. Some people try to live like that. You can't. Okay? (laughs) You can't do whatever you please. But God can because he's a creator. And to understand the Bible, you need to realize that God is the sovereign creator. There's no law superior to Him that commands to Him, Thou shalt not make elephants with four legs, or thou shalt not hate Esau, thou shalt not harden Pharaoh's heart. The ultimate answer to all objections is the relative position of creator and creature. All objections presuppose that man is in some way or other independent of God and has obtained from somewhere or achieved from his own efforts some kind of right over against God. Many folks suppose that once a being is created, he, she can claim that God is obligated to treat them the way they deserve to be treated. Not so. Man has, man has rights, they say. And God needs to respect our rights. On the contrary, man has no rights in opposition to God. Whatever rights a man thinks he has are only rights God's given him as a creator. Whatever rights he gives to men are a gift and not a debt. No one has any claims on the Creator. Remember in the book of Job when Job began to question God? I mean, he's having a rough time, okay? And he finally just comes to the point he starts questioning God. He wanted a legal hearing to prove God's injustices against him. God never explained his ways to Job. You know, Job, let me tell you what happened. No, what did he do? He exhibited them. He showed him the sovereign creation. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Tell me, Job, since you have understanding. And Job's like, blah, 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 blah. okay, I, you're right. You created it. You do what you want with it. God is God. No one can challenge that. And Paul concludes with three verses that, to apply this analogy. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. See, the grand object of God, both in election and reprobation, is that which is paramount above everything else in the universe, God's glory. Whatever He does, He does for His glory. Now, what if God, exercising His sovereign right of choice, make some vessels for mercy while others are made for wrath. Does he have a right to display his wrath? Do it like this. Yes, he has a right to display his wrath. It's one of his attributes. Okay? Does he have a right to display it? Yes, does he have a right to display his justice? Absolutely. Wrath and justice are as much part of his character as are mercy and grace. Desiring to show his wrath. God's, it's part of his attributes. One of his, it's part of who he is. And guess what? He wants to display who he is. This speaks of will of purpose, sovereign will. God wants to show his wrath because he wants to reveal who he is. And he's a God of wrath. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire. A jealous God. What if God desiring to show His wrath. Therefore, the entrance of sin into the world was necessary, right? What what happened when we didn't have sin? How could God show His wrath? So He could manifest His wrath and His judgment and His holy anger against that sin. Now listen carefully, people. This is a difficult subject. For ages, theologians have argued, theologians have debated over the origin of evil. Let me tell you plainly. It was God's will that sin entered the world. He decreed it. I know people go, no, what? Now, if that shocks you, listen, it's far more shocking to insist that sin invaded the world against God's will. God's like, I don't want that more. I can't stop it. That's not God. If sin invaded the world against His will, He wouldn't be omnipotent. Not at all. Now, some folks say that God just permitted sin to enter the world, but permission is not really a word we should use with God. Nothing in the universe can be independent of the omnipotent Creator, for in Him we live, move, and have our being. Therefore, the idea of permission really makes no sense when applied to God. Now, in his book, Reasons to Believe, R.C. Sproul Sr. was examining all the best and the most credible arguments for the origin of evil. Our theologians do this. Why is there evil? Where did it come from? After he examined some of the different theodicies, he concluded by saying this. These theodicies, remember that's a defense of God, are but a few of the more popular of the multitude of theories that have been offered as possible solutions to the enigma of sin. I'm not satisfied with any of them. Now, it's not my intent to be the devil's advocate or to lend assistance to those who reject Christianity, Because of these objections, I'm not trying to give the skeptic more ammunition than he he may already have. I'm trying to make it clear that the problem is a severe one 
and one for which I have no adequate solution. I do not know how evil could originate with a good God. I'm baffled by it, and it remains a troublesome mystery to me. He doesn't have a clue. Theologian doesn't have a clue about where this came from. Well, he's unable to address why there's a world full of evil. He has no explanation for it because he believes God is passive over evil, simply permitting it. Now, how terrifying would that be? <coughs> Excuse me, as we look out into the world where evil is rampant, especially in our day right now, okay, well, it's just gone crazy, you think. But I want you to know, hopefully you'll get this this morning, everything that's happening out there, God hasn't lost control. All right? He's carrying out His will. It'd be terrifying to think that stuff was being allowed to happen. God just kind of sitting back, oh, I'm going to let that go. What most Christians believe about God and evil is just plain old deism. Okay? Deism is the belief that God created the world. Let it run. Go. I'll stand by and watch. Okay? God is not an idle spectator looking on from a distant world at the happening on our earth. He himself is shaping everything to the ultimate promotion of his own glory. Although R.C. Sproul Sr. can't answer the question of the origin of evil, his son, R.C. Jr., can. And I remember him saying one time, when asked about the origin of evil, I don't know, he said, ask my son, he knows. And I like that, because he's right, his son did know. (laughs) And in his book, Almighty Over Evil, talked about this a little last week, in chapter 3 of that book, the chapter is called, Who Done It? And Sproul opens the chapter with introducing the problem like a mystery story, you know? And his conclusion is that of superlapsarian position. Specifically, that God was the one who caused the sin of man in the garden by changing the inclination of Adam and Eve towards that which is evil. Sproul writes, Every Bible-believing Christian must conclude at least that God in some sense desired that man would fall into sin. God wills all things that come to pass. It is in His power to stop whatever might come to pass. It is within His omniscience to imagine every possible turn of events and to choose that chain of events which most pleases Him. But wait a minute. Isn't it impossible for God to do evil? You can't sin. I'm not accusing God of sinning. I'm suggesting He created sin. Okay? Interesting there. Sproul is what would be called junior, a supralapsarian. So am I. His father is an infralapsarian. And he doesn't believe that God created evil. Now, the primary difference in the lapsarian positions is the order of the decrees. Alright? The infralapsarian says, God created a world and, oh, man sinned, so now God says, okay, what's plan B? Let's, let's, or what do I do next? Okay, so now I put in this plan. The superlapsarian says God started it all here, laid it all out exactly how he wanted, he's just working the plan. Okay? The order implies different origins of sin. Edwin H. Palmer writes this. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. It's not only my view, okay? To emphasize the sovereignty of God even more, it is necessary to point out that everything is ordained by God. It is even biblical to say that God has foreordained sin. If sin was outside the plan of God, not a single important affair of life would be ruled by God. Why? 
Because for what action of man is perfectly good? How many? None. Thus, once again, we confess with full force the absolute sovereignty of God. He predestines, elects, foreordains. A.W. Pink puts it this way. Clearly, it was the divine will that sin should enter this world. Or, it would not have done so. God had the power to prevent it. Nothing ever comes to pass except what He decreed. God's decree that sin should enter this world was a secret hid to Himself. Now, it should be obvious, I would think anyway, that sinful human nature is much more apt to deny or circumscribe God's authority in favor of human independence than to exaggerate the power of God. God brings to pass in time what He has decreed in eternity. There's evil in our world because God decreed it. And then He created it for His own glory. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. All things including sin were created by God. Look at Isaiah 45.7. This is God speaking. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Now, the word translated here, calamity, is better translated evil. And can you understand why translators didn't do that? (laughs) They don't like the way it sounds. Last week, Dana told me about a translation um, of the Scriptures. I'd never heard it before. It's called The Scripture 2009. That's the name of the translation. And what's interesting, here it is for this same verse, forming light and creating darkness, making peace and creating evil. Evil is a good translation of the Hebrew word ra. But notice what else it says. It says, I, Yahweh, they have the yod heh vav This translation did not translate it, transliterate. They simply left the Hebrew there that was there. Instead of capitalizing Lord, that's what Lord comes from, yod vav they left it there. I like that. Same thing with Yeshua. They left Yeshua's name you know, in the original Hebrew so you can see these things. They don't translate it. I like it. It's, a, it's an interesting translation and pretty accurate from what I've seen just you know, several days looking at it. But you can, if you have eSword, you can get this translation. It's part of the eSword free. Um, I don't know how else you could get it, um, but I'm sure it's out there in other forms. It's probably in print form. Now, listen. When you say... As this verse says, creating evil. When you say that God creates evil, Christians go into paroxysms. They just, you know, that doesn't sound right. Yet the whole Bible is filled with this idea. Evil is something that most Christians would associate with Satan, right? That's what Satan's job is, create evil. God does the good. One commentator remarks on the word evil in this text, in Isaiah, by saying this. He says, the Hebrew raw translated sorrow, wretchedness, adversity, affliction, calamities, but it's never translated sin. God created evil only in the sense that He made sorrow, wretchedness, and so forth, to be the sure fruits of sin. Now, let me ask you this. How could He have made such a statement? He must have examined every instance of raw in the Hebrew text and determined that in no cases it should be translated sin. If he, in fact, 
did study every use of raw in the Hebrew text, he would have come to a different conclusion, people. Okay? Because raw, look at it, Genesis 6, 5, and a number of other places, it's translated wickedness. In fact, raw translated wickedness some 50 times in the Tanakh. Let's look at several of them just so you see that this is how it's used. Genesis 2, 9. Out of the ground, Yahweh God made a spring, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and calamity? The word evil in this verse, ra, it is the knowledge, it's not knowledge of sorrow, it's not knowledge of calamity, it's primarily a knowledge of disobedience and sin. Genesis 6, 5, Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only raw, evil continually. God didn't see adversity or calamity in their hearts. He saw sinfulness. Raw is used here clearly to mean sin. The same is true of Genesis 8.21. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is raw, evil from his youth. Now, toward the end of Genesis, raw refers to an alleged theft, uh, many sins from which the angel had redeemed Jacob, three times the brothers sin against Joseph. You can study the whole Tanakh for yourself. And I encourage you to look this up. And you will see that raw often means sin as distinct from its punishment. Okay? Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city? The word disaster here is raw. Does sin come to a city unless Yahweh has done it? God has absolute control of everything that happens, both good and evil. He's sovereign. Nothing happens, including sin, outside of His will. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Okay, God works all things, not some things, after the counsel of His will. Now, I know that people don't like it when you say God decreed sin. That bothers people. I hesitate to say it because I know it bothers people. But it's what the Bible teaches. Let me ask you something. Is murder a sin? It's not a trick question. You're not sure? (laughs) Is murder a sin? Was crucifying the Son of God a sin? Yeah. Was Yeshua's murder decreed by God? Or was it an accident? It was decreed, right? For the Son of Man goes, watch, as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Who determined it? God did. Just in case you question that, I can prove it. Look at Acts 2.23. This Yeshua delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned it. He delivered them up. Then he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They were wicked in carrying it out, but it was what God decreed. Acts 4, 27, 28. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, watch what they were doing to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, people have a problem when you say that God's will for someone to commit murder, but 
The worst crime, the worst murder ever committed was the murder of the Son of God, and it was planned. You might say, well, that's a special case because it involved redemption. No, well, you see all through Scripture that God controls the will of man and sometimes causes sin. Absalom polluted his father's bed in an incestuous union, committing a detestable crime, right? Look what it says in 2 Samuel 16.22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This was evil. This was sin. So did he just happen to do that as an act of his own free will? People say, well, you know, well, listen, God declares to be the cause of this, okay? Look what God said to David in 2 Samuel 12, 11, and 12. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil, talking to David, against you out of your own house, his own son. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. That's a... This is prophecy of what is exactly happening. For you did it secretly. I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Now here, people, listen. This is what you need to understand. This is important. So if you don't get anything else, please just get this, okay? When men sin, God had decreed that they should perform the acts they did. But in carrying out these deeds, they were guilty because their own purpose in doing them was only evil. So God decreed this is going to happen, but when men do it, they do it because they're evil. And God is directing and controlling that evil to accomplish what He wants to. Men are responsible for their sin. That is so clear throughout the Scriptures. All right. As for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph's talking to his brothers. Did they mean evil? Absolutely. They hated their brother. Why? Because God favored them. Parents don't favor one child, the rest will hate them. Okay? And so they wanted to kill him. The jealous brothers had considered murdering Joseph. Let's just kill him. But they changed their minds and they sold him into slavery. Their intentions were evil, but God controlled their wills. They couldn't have killed Joseph because God had decreed to send Joseph to Egypt so he could save their lives. You meant evil against me, says God meant it for good. People, this is a this is a great verse to memorize, to understand, because you're going to have a lot of bad things happen to you in this life. People are going to hurt you, Christians are going to hurt you, family's going to hurt you, and you have to understand they did mean evil. They might have intentionally wanted to hurt you. But God meant that for good. And you're like, I don't like it, God. But He meant it for good. I don't like it. That's okay. It's for your good. Get used to it. And this is a a very helpful tool in forgiveness. Joseph held no animosity. How did he do that? Oh, I would have had some fun with those brothers. Oh, I would have. If I was the prime minister of Egypt, you would have suffered a little bit before I let it go. He just seems to no animosity. He forgives them. See, this, this verse here is after their father had died, the brothers are all afraid. Oh, hey, Dad said that don't be mad at us. And he said, listen, I know you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God sent me here to preserve your life. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> That's the sovereignty of God. Augustine said this, that men's sin proceeds from themselves, that in sinning they perform this or that action. It's from the power of God. 
The Bible put it this way, Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man. The answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. See, God is holy and sin is contrary to his holy nature, yet the existence and operation of it are according to his will. His eternal counsel determines sin's course. It's really clear. This is what the Bible teaches. But I understand it's not comfortable within our humanness because the way we view things. But our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Why did God decree sin? Romans 9.22 What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He focuses on the great patience of God who keeps back the wrath from those who deserve judgment. Paul's argument emphasizes the only thing that is not fair or just You ready for this? Is that God acted in mercy. That's not fair. That's not just. You deserve wrath. So if you want to talk about justice, and you know, God, when God expresses his wrath, that is justice. But you say, well, they get it and this person doesn't. That's because God is giving you mercy. It's not unfair. It's not unfair when God acts in mercy. Desiring to show His wrath and make known His power. How does God make His power known? By the judgment of sin. Sin provides a means for God to be glorified. He says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The verb translated prepare here, in this verse, probably a passive rather than a middle. Though the form of the passive and middle tense is identical in the Greek, the passive is much more common in the New Testament. And Paul probably meant that God prepares some people for destruction. That's what theologians call reprobation. God passing over the non-elect. Reprobation includes two acts. Passing those who are not elected, leaving them in their natural state, inclination of sin. You're a sinner, I'm going to leave you that way. Let you suffer the wrath for it. Secondly, the act of condemning on account of their sin those who have been passed. You're guilty. Listen, people, we're all guilty. That's how it started. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. All of them. We're all guilty. So God took this mass of humanity that was guilty and He says, I'm going to take some out for Myself. In order to make known the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. How are people prepared for glory? Well, earlier Paul discussed the redemption that is in Christ in Romans 3, 2, 21 and following. And the role in undoing the work of Adam in Romans 5, 12 through following. The mercy that was extended to Israel is now being extended to the nations. Those people that Israel considered vessels of destruction. It's believing people from these Gentiles who along with the believing Jews have been rescued and brought into the kingdom of God. Why did God save you? God saved you to display His mercy and His grace. He prepared beforehand our glory. Now, the vessels of mercy here are the us of 924. Paul and the first century believers. It is the us whom He has called. The word called takes us back to 830. Believers are the called of all nations. God's covenant promise finds its fulfillment not in Abraham's physical seed, but in the called, the elect of all nations. God extended His mercy in order to bring about a single covenant community made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. 
Now, had sin never entered the world, how could the justice of God be displayed in punishing it? How could the wisdom of God be manifest so wondrously in overruling it? How could the grace of God exhibited in pardoning it? How could the power of God have been exercised in subduing it? Who can resist His will? How can we be responsible for sin when we can't resist God's will? Well, here's the answer. Man is responsible because God calls us into account. Man is responsible because God can punish him for his disobedience. God, on the contrary, cannot be responsible for the simple reason that there's no power superior to him. God doesn't have answer to anybody. No one holds God responsible. There's no one who is responsible. There's no laws to which he can disobey. He's God. The sinner is responsible for his own sin, and he's going to be held account for that sin by a sovereign creator of the universe. Now, people often think, if we can't respond, then how are we responsible? Well, our inability to respond is something that we acquired by virtue of our sins. See, when Adam sinned, he represented us, he plunged us into sin. That's why we're unaccount- That's why we're unresponsive. Believers, God sovereignly chooses who will be saved, and those he chooses, he gives a new heart. The elect of God are sovereignly given birth from above, and once given spiritual life, they believe the gospel. And that's our verse, Romans 5.1. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God. So let me ask you this. What's the evidence of the new birth? Believing. That's the evidence. Now, people don't, you're not going to get that answer from most people, okay? You ask them, how do you know someone's a Christian? Uh, they go to church, they tithe, they don't smoke, they don't chew, they don't run with girls that do. You know, they do all these nice things, okay? That's, I mean, you, they're going to give you a list of things. That's how you know they're a Christian. No, the Bible says the way you know someone's a Christian, they believe the gospel of Christ. Because you can't believe unless you've been born from God. Faith is the evidence of the new birth. And so guess what? If someone believes, you treat them as a believer. They might not be living like a believer, but it's not their actions that make them a believer. It's their faith in Christ. God chooses some and rejecting others is fair and just because whatever God does is fair and just, okay? Because He's God. But this, I think this, this verse is so important because if you get this, it could change your mind on a lot of things. The evidence of Christianity is faith. Someone believes they're your brother, they're your sister in Christ. Treat them that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I know this has been difficult. It's been deep. Uh, I pray that you'd give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. I pray we wouldn't reject, we wouldn't accept, we'd study to see if these things are so. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us. It is incredible. Father, thank you for choosing us, for giving us life. We know we didn't deserve it, Lord. I pray we'd bring you glory through the way we live. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. I guess you could say that was my Father's Day message today. By the way, happy Father's Day. Whoa. <laughs> Sometimes these questions are so long, I'm like, uh, wait a minute, can I, let me try this, all right? 
Okay, this is, um, they're saying that God, there's, good morning, totally agree with everything that happens under the sovereignty, uh, sovereign will of God, but, you can't put a but in there. You either agree or you don't agree, okay? But, there's no buts, alright? But there is fluidity because he has changed his mind. And then they quote Exodus 32, Yahweh changed his mind about the disaster he planned bringing on his people. People, in order for God, you know, we're not understanding this text, okay? Because in order for God to change his mind, he needs new information. All right? Which would mean he didn't have that information in the beginning, which means he's not omniscient. God never learned anything, okay? And nothing ever occurs to him. He knows everything, the end from the beginning. So when the Bible talks about God changed his mind, that's talking from a human perspective. God's doing something that we thought he was going to do something different. Not that God said, Huh, I didn't know that. Okay, let's let's do it this way. All right. So I know I'm not getting this whole question, but um, then God saw their works and He turned from the evil way and relented. Yeah, God tells people, if you do this, I'm gonna judge you. If you don't do this, I won't judge you. So He's going to judge them, but then they turn. Guess what? You don't get judged because you turned. That's what I wanted. All right. God never changes. You do think God didn't know they were going to turn? He caused them to turn. They couldn't have turned apart from that. You know that? I mean, the sovereignty of God is so seen in the book of Jonah. All right? Go to Nineveh. No, I hate Ninevites. Not going. So I'll get on a ship and I'll run away from God. So God says, here's a storm. Throw this man overboard. Fish eats him. Okay, I'll go. <laughs> you won. God spits him out on the shore. And he goes into the city of Ninevites that he hates, and he goes, repent! And what happens? The whole city repents. And then what happens to Jonah? He's mad. God, I knew you were loving God. I knew you were merciful. That's why I didn't want to come here. I hate Ninevites. And now they're all turning to you. And you know, people, I've never heard that used in a missionary seminar. Here's how to reach people for God. Just go up and say, Repent! Oh man, it's just God all over the place. God wanted them to turn. They turned. Okay, there's no. You can't say, "I realize God is sovereign," but okay, there's no but there. He's just sovereign, and He controls everything. And what we don't understand is what we don't understand because there's nothing that you know He doesn't control. All right, um, he says, hello, my name is Pedro. I'm watching the sermon and heard the pastor mention something concerning God's family counsel. I know this is not the focus of today's message, but I'd like to know if you can perhaps send more information that expounds on this. I believe I've heard the pastor mention in another sermon that God has a family. I'd like to know more about this. Okay, good question, Pedro. Yes, God from eternity past, had a family that he created. Gods, other gods that he counseled with. We see this. First Kings 22 talks about the council. God's sitting on his throne. Gods are around him. They're talking about how we're going to judge the king. Go to our website. Go to the studies page. And then go all the way down to the bottom of the studies page. And there's a link that says divine counsel. All messages about this subject. Or you can go to the book of Ephesians. Go to chapter 6. There's six messages that I did in Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare. 
This is all about these other gods. So there's six messages there. That'll bring you up to speed on what we're talking about here. Um, Heiser's book, Michael Heiser's book, The Divine... uh, The Unseen Realm. Very good book discussing laying this out. Now, Heiser's an Arminian, so you you have to forgive him. But he does... This is his wheelhouse, okay? Divine Council stuff. So he's got some great, great stuff there. Um, All right. Anybody else? Any other questions? Stan. Uh, I like your explanation. Maybe John did it alone, you know, after that. But when he explained, he said, God is sovereign, but man is responsible, but I can't explain it. So maybe you could tell him. God is sovereign, and we're responsible because God holds us responsible. That's why we're responsible, okay? (laughs) And again, we we look at so many things from our perspective. But if you understand that when God created Adam, He created him as a federal head of the human race. You represent the human race to me. He put him in a probationary situation where here, you live in this garden, do anything you want, but don't touch this one tree. Adam sins because not a serpent, a divine being comes to him, all right, and says, hey, God's telling you this because he knows you'll be like him. So he sins, and when he sins, he took the whole human race and plunged it into sin. You, you know, people say, well, that's not fair. He didn't represent me. Yes, he did, because God chose him to represent you. Okay? And when our representatives do dumb things, it doesn't matter. We chose them as our representatives. We're stuck under it, okay? But here, if you don't like the fact that Adam was your representative, you might think about the fact that Christ is your representative also. Okay? And what Adam messed up with, Christ came and fixed. And so we might not want Adam as a representative, but we certainly want Christ as a representative. Okay? So he represented us. So we're in a state of sin. All men. Everybody's on the level playing field. We're all guilty. God in his love and mercy says, I choose some. I mean, you know, people go overseas to get babies. Okay, they have trouble getting babies. They go overseas to to get babies. They take you in an an orphanage and say, here's what. And the people say, I'll take this one. (gasps) That's not fair of you to choose. I could take them all. I mean, maybe I could take all of them. I, I just want one. Okay? Out of that person's love, they chose this person. You know what confuses me about adoption? People act like adoption is some secondary, not a good thing. I'm thinking, you know, when you birth a kid, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Okay? It's what you get. But with adoption, man, you just go out and you're saying, I chose you. I think that should be more special than any. Listen, God adopted us. We're adopted. God chose us. And he chose us when he knew us. Oh, my word. All right, we're going to wrap this up. Um, we're not going to even close with a song. I'm just going to pray and we're done. So thanks for the questions. Appreciate them. Appreciate you watching. Um, let's stand to be dismissed in prayer. Father, I thank you for your incredible grace to us. Lord, I pray we'd study the Scriptures that we might know You. I know that Your Word says those who know Your name will put their trust in You. Father, we want to know Your name. We want to know Your character. And the only way we'll understand that we realize is through the Scriptures. So give us a heart diligent to seek, to study, to know. Lord, thank You for Your incredible love for us. Thank You, Lord, for choosing us, Your adopted kids. We love You. Amen.